so I don't always tell the truth. Hi everybody, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Mike. It's an honor and a privilege to be a part of anything connected with Alcoholics Anonymous, and particularly to come back to Georgia. I've got a special place in my heart for Georgia and Georgia people, and I run across a few people I've seen around before, and I'm just delighted to be here. And I want to thank Bill for taking care of me. He didn't do a very good job. And we were eating, and at 14 minutes to 8, he said the meeting's at 8 o'clock, not 8.30, so... I didn't get my shower, but I look beautiful, don't I? <laughs> I've got a close connection with my higher power, isn't it? Notice that. Maybe you've never had God give you the raspberry before. Bill sat down next to me as we were at the Red Ball meeting, which was a great... I was ready to go to bed after that. That was a great meeting. And I might remind you that I, I do qualify. I'm a real alcoholic, according to Chapter 3, the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. It became quite apparent to me that most of you people have read that, uh, that book, that textbook, and so I don't have to talk about it. I'm going to read, quote to you from Reader's Digest tonight. Uh, I just recently moved to Maryland, so my new home group is the Mason-Dixon Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Emmitsburg, Maryland. It's a great town. We have one street light and two streets. I can walk to the meetings. And of course, I just moved up there from North Carolina, so they're not doing anything right. But I've been sober long enough to know that it's not time for me to get them straightened out. And uh, that's what's beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we're a little bit different. I was at a four... <laughs> My friend Keith and I, he drove me down today. And uh, I, I, every time we get to speak together, I'm always a Friday night guy. He's always on Saturday. So I do the John the Baptist routine. <laughs> For what did you come to see? A reed blowing in the wind? See, one comes after me who is greater than I. <laughs> I'm not fit to, to latch his sandals. And in fact, that's, that's true. Uh, you're in for a treat tomorrow if you've never heard Keith before. It's been my privilege to know this guy for 26 years. When I met him, he was sober 11 months. And I'd already been working in treatment for two months. Apparently, he had read about Dr. Bob. And that's the way Dr. Bob did his. He sobered him up and sent him out carrying the message. He's been doing it ever since. I've known this guy for many, many years. And we've always been very close. We've been prayer partners for years. And I don't know anybody, when I've been around a little bit, uh, who has helped more alcoholics, including this one, than Keith L., who you're going to hear tomorrow. So uh, I'm not just here to toot his horn. I'm here to tell you the truth, and you'll believe it when you hear it. Uh, we have been pals for many years, and uh, occasionally we get together and give each other a spiritual haircut. And he drove me down from Wilmington, North Carolina today. So I got, and the first thing we said, there's, oh, there's Keith. I've always wanted to meet him. Same thing happened. I, I moved away to Maryland nine weeks ago. I came back and went to both of his home group meetings this week. He was not there. He was busy out speaking to California here and there. I walk in. I've been missing for nine weeks. And they come up and say, when's Keith coming back? <laughs> and I meet the same thing out here. Oh, you're from North. How's Keith? Oh, how about me? I sobered up in North Carolina, a little town called New Bern, uh, on July 19th, 1970. And that to me is just amazing. Talk about celebrating the miracle. Because by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I had never tried to not, not, to not drink. I mean, that just, was, just didn't register. But I must tell you that from my first AA contact, not my first AA meeting, to this minute, I have not had a drink of alcohol. And that is a miracle. I'm not the miracle. AA is the miracle. I was introduced to the miracle at a coffee table. 
in a Holiday Inn Hotel in Newburgh, North Carolina. Now, I'm supposed to tell you what I was like, what happened, what I'm like now. AA was exactly 72 days old. Dr. Bob had put his last drink down on July, uh, June 10th, 1935. And in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, I'm told on August 20th, count them up, 72 days. I'm told that at St. Luke's Hospital, which is right on the shore of Lake Michigan, it was a cloudy, overcast day. And at 8.33, a little voice was heard in the maternity ward. A little cry was heard. <clears throat> and at that moment, the clouds parted. And a ray came down from the sky of lights, landing on the maternity ward. And a great voice was heard from the heavens saying, Whoops. I come from a very small family, which is amazing because I'm Roman Catholic and Irish, and uh, uh, I had one sister and one set of parents, which is unique. And uh, and that's the way it was. Uh, I went to parochial school. Uh, I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Guilt. And uh, when my mother read to me, "Who killed Cock Robin?" I thought, "Well, I probably did." Uh, <clears throat> so I was uh, when. When Dr. Silkworth writes about being restless, irritable, and discontented until we can find that stuff that makes us feel better, and he says that we drank, he thinks that we drank for the effect. What an observation, you know. I drank for the effect, and it, I had a little heart surgery. Bernie and I belonged to the Zipper Club and, uh, a few years ago, and I was working for, the, for Keith Sponsor in the, in the prison system in North Carolina, working with drugs and dope fiends in the prison system, and I uh, had a little heart surgery, so they gave me two months off without pay, a very big of them. And uh, so I had a lot of time to sit there and ponder the big book and the big, big book. And I was going all the way back. When was I really first affected by alcohol? And I went way back when I was a kid. I, by this time, we lived in South Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My grandfather was a town druggist in a little town called Keel, Wisconsin. Thank God he died before I got too much older. I probably would have become one of those pill junkies and robbed him blind. But uh, there's this beautiful little town, looked like a picture postcard, had a little river running through it, and church, butcher shop, saloon, church, bakery, saloon, 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 church, and uh, drugstore. And uh, what we would do, and this is about the early 40s, I was about six years old, and I had, my older sister was there. And what they did in those days to help the kids go to sleep early, uh, we would sit around the great stone fireplace. Now, later on, I discovered it was just a stone fireplace, but when you're three feet tall, it was the great stone fireplace. In order to make us get, go to bed early so Santa Claus could come, they would give us brandy and milk. And uh, so uh, I was sitting there at the great stone fireplace, a nice warm fire, and I'm sitting there, and I have my brandy and milk. And I didn't get sleepy. In fact, uh, I wanted some more brandy and milk. <laughs> So they gave me another one because they wanted Santa Claus to come so they could get on with what they were doing. And after the second one, I really didn't give a rent's patoot whether Santa Claus came or not. Huh? <laughs> I looked, reared up to my full height, three feet, and looked my six foot four ex-Marine father directly in the knee and demanded another one. <laughs> At which point they put me to bed and Santa Claus came. So. But that was my first recollection of alcohol doing something for me. Made me feel funny behind my knees. Uh, you know those, those people out there and don't understand what, what we alcoholics have. You know, the, you, you know them, they, the ones that say, no thanks, three's my limit. 
Or they leave a glass of wine on the table at a, you know, at a nice pasta dinner. And say, well, what are they doing? Now, three is my limit means they don't like that feeling. They're getting changed. <laughs> you know, we just say, hey, let's get it on. We're about there now. So we chase that, uh, that feeling. And uh, Dr. Silkworth was absolutely right, I think, in the doctor's opinion. I drank for the effects. It made, did things for me that nothing else ever did, and it started early. Now, I came from a pretty classy family. We're, we're mid, middle-class folks, and my mother was well brought up, very, very intelligent. My dad was an ex-Marine, doing good. Honest guy. And uh, so I was taught to drink like a gentleman. I was able to do that for a long time. Until I was about 12. <laughs> And I'm up visiting the grandparents in Keele, Wisconsin again in the summertime and they have the fireman's picnic. They have a big picnic. The Oompa bands come in and, and the Dusty Road show is there with all the rides and we save up our money all summer long. And some of the kids would uh, spend their money on a tilt-a-whirl and puke. Other kids would uh, spend their money on a Ferris wheel and puke. And, uh, now if you're old enough to get your nickel on the bar up there, you're old enough to drink. So I bought beer and I puked. And I had my first blackout that I recall. I came to two in the the little commode off my grandmother's kitchen. She's a little Irish woman. And she always made excuses. Michael's a good boy, but he has a fierce thirst. <laughs> he's a fine lad, but the truth just isn't in him. She had me down, but she, he's tossing his cookie. I was puking up my guts as I was doing it. But I, I came to in this, in this commode. And it was at that point that I discovered, very early on in life, about age 12, that I was a seeker of beauty and poetry and truth. Inscribed inside this commode, as I opened my eyes coming out of the back, was Madoc Madoric, made of Duroc. I said, God, that's beautiful. <laughs> Madoc Madoric, made of Duroc. It flowed. It was beautiful. Was, God, that's wonderful. I spent many years researching other facilities looking for other poetry like that. <laughs> I found Polar of Kohler. That was alliterative, but it wasn't there. I found American Standard. That was, that was uh, patriotic, but it didn't matter. Never again. That I find Madoc Madoric made of Duroc. And believe me, I looked. Later on in the years, if my wife had been less kind, she could have flushed me to death most any night. <laughs> but uh, years later, after my sister heard my story, and she was kind of in seek at the old family homestead and sold it. And I had a little place up in the hills of West Virginia. I was working in D.C. and driving back and forth. And I had this little spot. And I got this thing delivered. Great big heavy box. Open it up. And there it is. Madoc Madoric made of Duroc. <laughs> So I made a den table out of it. People in West Virginia didn't understand. So what that there thing in your couch? I said, well, that's uh, an end. Looks like I come old to me. I said, well, I said, what are you keeping there? I said, all my important crap. Why? <laughs> so enough of this toilet humor. Anyway, you can see that I'm not wrapped real tight. Of course, your committee isn't either. They invited me to come down here to tell you something you already know. Alcoholics Anonymous works. Good night. Thank you very much. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, uh, I want to, I got to tell you about my mother. She was a beautiful woman, intelligent, well-read, highly educated, and fun. But she did drink a bit. And uh, she taught me a love of poetry, and beauty, and uh, music, and uh, good scotch. And we tippled a few. Now, when I went on to college, we moved down to Missouri right after World War II. Oh, some of us can remember that. And uh, I moved from a place where everybody was either Catholic or Lutheran to the Methodists and Baptists. And they found it very necessary to evangelize me, as any good Baptist and Methodist would do. That boy's praying to statues. 
We've got to do something about him. They had a little help from the Ku Klux Klan who shot our priest one day. So I got a little nervous about being Catholic. <laughs> and I, they said, where do you go to church? Mike said, oh, I'm going So I'd go on the bus. And the kids, they were great kids. I loved them all. And we were great friends. But... So anyway, I'd go on the buses with them, you know. I got the joy, 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 joy. I'm a good Baptist. And uh, I'd sneak over and be an altar boy on Sundays. God, I hope nobody saw me here. The clan will get me. So I was basically a coward, as you can tell. I was a spiritual coward and have been most of my life until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I did, uh, I went to high school, you know, and I did all right. I said, you can tell by this body, I was a great athlete. Uh, and, uh, well, I was. I'm a made all-state football player because I knew that if they caught me, they were going to kill me. So I, ran. I knew if I got to the H place, you know, that crossbar was, I'd be safe. So I went there a lot. And then I got a college football scholarship, which I turned out immediately because I knew I would not live through my freshman year. So I went to the University of Missouri and I met her there. Of course, my drinking increased. You, you understand that I've been drinking more all along, don't you? And uh, when I got loose and down to school, well, then I could just drink all the time. So I majored in Chugalug and minored in introduction to I have three hours of everything ever offered and no degree of course I got about 140 hours of college credit and no degree introduction to this introduction to that yes I think I'll try that I took some speech and dramatic arts classes which which I really liked but I was too drunk to finish but it was one Sunday afternoon in 1958 and I was down at a place called the Italian village a drinking place and I was laying under this table <laughs> resting And I looked up and she was dancing on top of it. And I fell in lust, love. Uh, and I pursued her, as we would say down south. I pursued her. And I got her pregnant. That's how we used to get engaged back in the 50s. <laughs> and I can, I can pick up. Here's a girl that drank like my mother. Which means she hid my... Her alcoholism almost killed me because I could see her. She hid her booze. I didn't hide mine. I drank with the boys. And uh, eight years later, we had five poor little kids running around and two drunks. And it was not a pretty sight. Uh, I uh, did the same thing with my career. My career started out slowly and then it tapered off. You know, was. <laughs> we got to St. Louis and I went to work for a candy company that very, did very well in the early 60s. They invented a thing called Sweet Tarts and I was in on that and... These people, and I was doing very well with them, and these people did a terrible thing. You can't do this to alcoholics. They were threatening me with a career. I had to get out of there. God knows, let's not get successful here. So I'm up visiting my mom. By this time, my parents had divorced because of drinking and another woman and all this kind of stuff. But my mom had moved up to the old homestead up in Wisconsin. Of course, she was my hiding place. So I left to Liz and a few of the kids, and I went up to visit mom. And we're sitting there, she's having scotch, and I knew she was going to get profound because she started examining her ankle. When she started examining her ankle, got terribly fond of her foot, I knew she was going to get profound and say something really wonderful. She looked like Catherine Hepburn, uh, a younger Catherine Hepburn. And uh, after a couple of scotches, and people would say, Mary, you look like Catherine Hepburn. A couple of scotches, she'd start talking like Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> so Hepburn and I are sitting there having a few drinks. You know? And she's being Hepburn, and I'm being, okay, baby. She says, Michael, wasn't one of your majors in college speech and dramatic artists? I said, yes, I was, beloved mother. She said, well, one of the announcers over at WPLY in Plymouth, Wisconsin, is leaving his position to start a polka band. You could probably have that position if you I, well, I probably could, huh? 
She says, the, the manager's name is Dalton Hilly. Why don't you give him a call? I think I probably will. So I call him up. And back in the early 60s, radio announcers had to talk as though they carried their cojones in a wheelbarrow. So this guy says, Yes, how can I help you? I like to talk to you about the radio job. Why don't you come over? We'll discuss it. So I throw a few of my shooters down. I drive 14 miles, blue and white smoke coming out of the back of my car and pull into this parking lot. The whole stage is about the size of this podium. It's a 500-watt daytime, country and western in the morning, and polka music in the afternoon. I throw down a couple more shooters, happen to carry a little in the car with me, strut it in there. Mr. Hilly says, son, Mr. Way, pardon, I just blew my anonymity. Mr. F Smith, uh, <laughs> What makes you think you're capable of working in this particular broadcast modality? Of course, being full of uh, courage. I said, well, Mr. Hilly, I read and speak English. He says, that's better than I've got now. Can you start Monday? That's how I broke into the wonderful world of broadcasting. I was in it for about 30 years, and I, I'm glad I did. I was only fired for being drunk on the air one time in Oshkosh, of all places. Well, by this time, my wife's drinking had gotten out of hand. I'm working up in uh, Marshfield, Wisconsin, doing radio in over in, uh, where's the place where they sell insurance? Uh, Wausau, Warsaw, Wausau. I was doing television sports over there in the evening, and I could drink going back and forth. So, But she hid her booze. And she would hide her booze in the dandy dighty diaper service thing, in the wet diapers. So I would get home. I kicked down the front door. She'd been drinking, haven't she? <laughs> See, I was untreated AA and untreated Al-Anon, and so were both of us. We needed both programs and didn't know anything. We were, we were like, we were needy kids. Here we had five little kids, and we were like needy children. We never grew up. You see them in, in AA meetings. They come in, they're new, right? You see needy Jane over there. She's got a history of 42 disastrous relationships. She's wearing too much eye makeup, tank top, and hot pants, and it's January. <laughs> and Needy Joe comes in over there. Now, he's also wearing a tank top. He's got the right tattoos, and he's pierced in the proper places. He's got his ponytail hanging down just right, and he's saying, the bathroom's over there, baby. And they see each other across the table. Now, he's got 47 disastrous previous relationships. I through this program just like I did. Uh... We got to see Big Ken make our annual pilgrimage every five years on his birthday, 85th birthday. He announced to all his friends that his children were alcoholics. And these people leaving this party all happened back. Oh, we're so sorry. We were the only sober ones there. And he, and he never loved me. See? So I went out for his 85th birthday. And uh, he wasn't quite six foot four anymore. And he's had it for years. Uh, I recorded books for the blind and physically handicapped for the Library of Congress. And those books are in libraries all over the country. I said, what are you doing with that talking book machine there? He says, well, boy, he says, you always called me boy. I was 50-something. And uh, I resented that because he didn't understand me. He never loved me. And uh, he said, well, you know, I don't see so good anymore. And he says, I went to the library and got one of them talking book machines. I said, great, what are you listening? So, well, the first one I got was one you recorded. You know I like Westerns, so I got that one. I said, how long ago was this? He said, oh, about six months ago. I said, well, you still got that tape there. How come you still got it? He says, well, I wanted to take it back and they'd lost paperwork, so I just kept some bitch. 
And I said, Dad, why would you keep that? You've already heard the book. He says, tell you the truth, boy. Every now and then, I just need to hear the sound of your voice. Clancy calls what we have disease perception. And what I had done over the years was denied my father's love because he didn't, deny, he didn't love me the way I wanted him to, me, to. And what I discovered, he loved me the way he did. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to continue to call this not love or accept what's offered to me? Well, I called him every Saturday morning. From there. I heard the sound of my voice every Saturday. And if I didn't call by a certain time, he called me, you all right, boy? He never believed I was still sober until on my 25th AA birthday. Congratulations on 25 years, July 19th, 1970. He'd been keeping track. I went out on his 90th birthday. And he gave me this ring. And Irene, his wife, was standing there. See, because he never said he loved me. He gave me this ring. I want you to ask my mother gave me this ring. I could see that it was the wrong ring. This is a retirement ring. His mother gave him a garnet. I didn't say anything. Irene's going, I promise. See, because I knew he was just trying to say, I love you. Didn't matter what it was about the ring. It was what he was trying to say was, I love you. And I said, thank you, Dad. I'll wear it forever, and I will. It could have been a cigar band. Because he was trying to communicate something that I was never able to hear. And then the great chance of my life, because I tried to make direct amends to my father. 28 years of my sobriety, he called up and he said, Son, I'm not doing so good. I'm going to need some help. You're not married. You live there. It's just awful not to ask. Could you come out and take care of me? Irene's going to need some help. I said, I'll be on the next plane. And I was. And I was ready to leave there and live in Arizona. And he decided he would die. And uh, we had a great time sending him off. I said, Dad, you remember the time. You know, us alcoholics, men, we do sex a lot. We don't know anything about it. I was eight years old. I've been in parochial school. And I came. I heard the F word. I liked it a lot. Didn't know what it meant. But I wrote a little song. And I shared it with the family at the dinner table. <laughs> My dad would always, something normally he would just backhand me against the wall. He said, we got to talk. So we went for a walk. He said, one of these days, boy, when you're ready, I'm going to tell you about the birds and the bees. So I'm out there, he's pushing his 92nd birthday and I'm 63 years old. He's laying there drugged up, having a good time, dying. I'm praying with him, praying his favorite prayers every night, saying a rosary with him. And he's having a good time setting himself off. I said, do you remember, Dad, it was 1943. I was eight years old and I used the F word. Oh, I remember that well. I said, do you remember telling me that when I was ready, you were going to tell me about the birds and the bees? He said, oh yeah, I remember that. I said, Dad, am I ready? He said, no. (laughs) He was slipping away and I felt that as a good... uh, Catholic that I am, I felt on a Wednesday morning, two days before Christmas in 98, I had this urge to go to Mass and ask God at the consecration of the host to receive my father. And when I got home, he had received my father at that very moment. Now, here's the difference between drunk and sober. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1968. When my mother died, I said, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you take my mother? That was my vision of God. What kind of a God would off a very nice human being just to get my attention? That's where my ego was. But in 98, I was able to say, thank God, thank you for taking my father. And that's the difference in being a drunk guy out there and a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've learned what this thing is all about. And it's all about God, folks. As you understand it. I've been around almost 30 years now. 
And I've heard God call everything from the man upstairs, the woman upstairs, uh, HP, higher power, God, Yahweh, Elohim, Allah, Adonai, great Manitou, great spirit, Jesus, Holy Trinity, and the list goes on and on. And on page 88, line 8, the shortest paragraph in the big book, it tells us why we pray. It works. It really does. Whatever you call your higher power, once you call on that power, I've discovered this is God that answers prayer. It's been my experience that whatever we, whatever name we use, that God does not suffer some sort of a personality uh, crisis or an identity crisis. God is God. There is one who has all power, and that one is God. May you find him now. Thank you.